coming up on the Sark Fighter podcast. And I think that people assume that black women are strong. Women of minority descent are strong because of how we were treated in early ages and everything like that. So we took on the strength of our ancestors and that we can handle a whole lot more than anybody from any other demographic. That's not necessarily true. African-American women are 13 times more likely to die from sarcoidosis than whites. Because, you know, African-Americans are, you know, at higher risk for other illnesses as well. Um, it could be an economic status. It could be um, environmental status. It could be anything. But um, it's just it's just one of those things that you just you're kind of baffled about. Coming up. A look at how the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research is helping them find their voice with hopes the medical community will listen. This is the Sark Fighter Podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Hello and welcome. This is episode 47 of the Sark Fighter podcast. I am your host, John Carlin, a fellow Sark Fighter. This podcast is brought to you in part by a grant from Atire Pharma. So I do this podcast, as you've heard me say, to offer my fellow Sark Fighters hope and to help you connect with other Sark patients to hear their stories, understand how sarcoidosis affects their lives, and hopefully that helps you understand what you are up against and what you need to do to overcome, whether it's the disease or the effects of the medicine or both. And at the end of the day, I try to offer hope because a lot of people are finding a way to either cope or overcome their situation, and and it results oftentimes in a situation where people have have found a way to deal with sarcoidosis. But today we're going to talk about the group who is fighting harder and dealing with more and sometimes not having such successful outcomes, and that would be women of color. It's a, it's a sobering topic. I'll tell you that I think it ends with hope because somebody's doing something about it, but we've got to look at some tough facts first before we get there. African-American women or women of color are in a tough spot. They are by far the largest group of people to get sarcoidosis, and their cases tend to be more extreme. In fact, they're more likely to die from sarcoidosis than any other group, even more than African-American men. And there are statistics that bear that out, and we'll get to those a little bit later on in the podcast. But trust me, when you hear these things, it's, uh, it's just amazing how much worse things are for this group. But then a couple of questions come to mind, because the first thing you want to say is, well, why? Right? I mean, why? So are they just more susceptible to sarcoidosis? Do, I, you know, do their bodies just get it more easily? Is there something in their DNA, their genetic code that opens them up to sarcoidosis? Or perhaps is it the fault of doctors in the medical community? Uh, are doctors 
just not listening to their patients? Are they disregarding them? Do they see them as unimportant? Is there is there something that happens when uh, a woman of color shows up and says, hey, I don't feel good, and the doctors just, just blow them off, or uh, I don't look deeply enough into the situation, and then, and then you know, the sarcoidosis takes over and it's, and it's too late? Um, is, is that a part of the problem? And I can tell you that uh, to a certain extent it is, and we're going to delve into that today. But also, is this group just socioeconomically less able to access quality health care? A woman of color starts feeling sick, but she either doesn't have insurance, or she doesn't have a car to get to the doctor, or she has a car, but she's got small children, she doesn't have daycare, she can't afford daycare, uh, or she's dependent upon a friend or a relative to take her, and, and so she winds up either not going to the doctor or not following up with her appointments, and so there's just a, a socioeconomic component to this that can also lead to a situation. And, and then you look at all of these different things and do they compound themselves? And we wind up with a lot of people having extremely severe to the point of mortality cases of sarcoidosis that just shouldn't be there. So in order to answer those questions and to do something about it, FSR has created the Women of Color Patient Advisory Committee. It's 15 African-American women. They range in age from 33 to 72 across 10 different states with 11 different kinds of sarcoidosis or, or manifestations, if you will, to use a, a slightly more medical term. And so these women will be engaging in media interviews. They'll be sharing their stories. They'll be out there in the public trying to empower others and to draw attention to this situation. And I got to tell you, I'm pleased to say that some of these women have appeared as guests here on the Sark Fighter podcast, or I've met several of them through the different committees at FSR that we both serve on. And, uh, and I want to read you the names of the women who are on this committee, because I think that, that um, they, they deserve that. They deserve to, to get a shout out because they're putting themselves out there. So here they are. The 2021 Women of Color Patient Committee members are Cheryl Bradford, Erica Courtney Mann, Gary Farrow, Jeanette Harper, Brenda Harris, Marsha Henderson, Gloria McDaniel, Mary Oldham, Chasta Posey, who will be joining us here on the podcast today, Jessica Props, Jessica Reed, Aura Riley, C. Ann Scott, Rhonda Underhill, and Catherine Washington. So congratulations to all of you for having the courage to step up and to share your stories and to help shine a light on this problem with women of color when it comes to sarcoidosis. Now there's also, I just want to point out, uh, there's a distinguished group of doctors who are working on this as well, as well. So they would be the clinical advisory committee and they are working with the WOC group, and that includes four clinicians and an epidemiologist. And we'll be hearing from one of those doctors, uh, Dr. Ennis James, uh, also in the podcast today. So getting back to those questions, whose fault is it? Is it anyone's fault? And no matter what, what can be done to fix the problem? 
So joining me again today will be the Women of Color Committee member, Chasta Posey, who is a dynamo in the fight against sarcoidosis and one of the very first people I interviewed when I started this podcast. And I've met Chasta in person, and we've been involved in several calls together, Zoom calls during the epidemic. Um, And so she will be joining. And then Dr. Ennis James, a physician specializing in sarcoidosis and sarc research from the Medical University of South Carolina. And he is working very hard on solving this problem for women of color. Uh, And I also learned during the interview that he turns out to be Chasta's doctor. So kind of interesting to have a patient and a doctor on at the same time. Uh, Although we didn't delve too much more into Chasta's story, uh, but I can tell you that she's lost the vision in one eye and she has sarcoidosis in just about every part of her body. And I'll put a link to the original interview with Chasta in the show notes. So we didn't go too much into Chasta's situation other than to talk broadly about this women of color situation. But I'm going to ask both of them why sarcoidosis is so much more prevalent and dangerous in women of color. And they have some interesting answers as to who is to blame and what the reasons are. So the topic of women in color and sarcoidosis next on the Sark Fighter podcast. I feel like a zombie just feeding at stumbling. Hi, I hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter Podcast. You may be wondering, what can I do to help? How can I be a part of the sarcoidosis solution? It's simple. Make a donation to KISS. Kick in to stop sarcoidosis. 100% of the money goes to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Look for a link in the show notes of the Sark Fighter Podcast. Welcome back to the Sark Fighter podcast. And joining me now is Chasta Posey, uh, who uh, works with the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research as an advocate, a peer mentor, a patient navigator. She's one of the original, uh, used to be called ambassadors, but now it's advocate, uh, which I am also. So I met Chasta at a meeting that we had before uh, the the pandemic shut everything down and she's been on the podcast before but now she's here in her capacity of the women of color committee chasta welcome thank you it's so good to see you and to have me back yeah so good to have you back and now this women of color committee um is is shining a light on something that's really important because african-american women and we're going to go over these statistics, suffer from sarcoidosis just way more than any other group. Tell me, tell me about that right off the top. Well, in the origination of sarcoidosis and when you research it and you look at everything that it entails, women of color, women of Scandinavian descent are highly more affected with sarcoidosis than any other demographic known. Um, and a lot of a lot of us don't really talk about it a lot because of some of the disparities that African American women have in the healthcare uh, field and everything like that. So I think the Women of Color Committee is um, very vital to um, 
sarcoidosis in African-American women and getting research and developments done and, and everything like that. So I'm excited for what we're, what we're doing and I'm excited for what's to come. Yeah. So let's jump into this whole disparities thing, because there are there are 15 women on this committee, mm-hmm. African-American women, and uh, I, I have met many of them through uh, different committees and so forth with the foundation and also through the podcast. Um, but you you said that when you guys sat down and you started talking and you already used the word disparities, you are seeing a pattern develop here. What is that pattern? The pattern that we're seeing develop is that women of color, um, not just African-American descent, but any women of any woman of color um, who is considered in the minority, they are are looked down upon in the healthcare field. Um, A lot of doctors and 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 healthcare providers don't really pay a lot of attention to the problems and the issues that African-American women have. We can probably say what we think it is, but, you know, one of the things that I thought about um, growing up is that I saw a lot of strong women around me. And I think that people assume that Black women are strong. Women of minority descent are strong because of how we were treated in early ages and everything like that. So we took on the strength of our ancestors and that we can handle a whole lot more than anybody from any other demographic. That's not necessarily true. We hurt just like everybody else hurts. We go through just like anybody else goes through. And I think sometimes we put the stigma of strength on us as a replacement um, for what we really need. And we can be strong all day long. And a lot of people, I see a lot of people posting and even myself take on the thing, uh, take on the mantra of, you know, you know, I have no choice but to be strong because being strong is the only other option that I have. No, you have plenty of options. You have plenty of options. And one of those options is the health care that you pay for that comes out of your check, that you pay those taxes for. The health care that you pay for, you're due and deserve that same equal amount of attention that anybody else gets. So women of color, we were treated differently. Women of minority um, stature are, were treated differently. And we just, we're just trying to close that gap and bridge that gap between the patient and the provider. And we'll talk a little bit more about what the foundation is doing. But basically, um, you guys are launching a, a month-long social media campaign. Uh, that'll be coming up during Black History Month in February of 2022. Um, and there's just there's a whole lot going on. Um, and, and I also want to mention right off the top, let's see, there will be a, uh, a Twitter chat sponsored by Mallinckrodt and Global Genes, and that's coming up on Monday, October 25th from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. Central Standard Time. And some of the doctors will be on there to answer questions about sarcoidosis and so forth. So I want to commend you and your group and the foundation for taking the bull by the horns here and saying, look, there's a thing out there and we need to address it. And I'm going to, I'm going to share a couple of statistics. This is from the news release that came out yesterday uh, from the foundation, really announcing this, this group, African-American women are three times more likely to develop sarcoidosis when compared to Caucasians. They're also more likely to experience chronic and severe symptoms leading to hospitalization rates 18 times higher 
than Caucasian men, 10 times higher than Caucasian women, and more than double that of African-American men. Um, And then it says, additionally, sarcoidosis-related mortality rate, people dying from sarcoidosis, this is tragic, Shasta, 13 times higher than that of Caucasians and 1.5 times higher than African-American men. Is that because you're mistreated or do your bodies have a stronger reaction to sarcoidosis or both? I be- I honestly believe it's both, um, but I can't say um, on the medical or the scientific side. Um, I can only see my experience in me coming out about my illness and things like that and connecting with a lot of other people in the sarcoidosis community. Our bodies are just different. Everybody's body is different, of course. Um, but sometimes our, your genetic makeup can kind of, you know, push along further because, you know, African-Americans are, you know, higher risk for other illnesses as well. Um, it could be an economic status. It could be um, environmental status. It could be anything, but um, it's just, it's just one of those things that you just, you're kind of baffled about. We need the research. And I try to get as many African-Americans and people of minority descent to join the registry so we can get the research opportunities that, you know, we're looking for. And, you know, so we can get the data on paper and, you know, to find out why we're highly affected the way we are. And so that's part of what this campaign is is going to do. It's going to put us in a position to where we can um, put our our African-American men and women in a position to get the answers that we're looking for, that we ask ourselves sitting at the kitchen table every day. Why is this happening the way that it's happening? Yeah. So you guys feel like when you go in and you sit down with the doctor, you, you had 15 women in this group and you had the commonality of not being listened to. So therefore slow diagnosis or undiagnosis Yes. One of the common things with the group of women is that a lot of us were diagnosed. It took a while. It took a while for a lot of us to be diagnosed because someone may have been diagnosed with cancer. Someone else may have been diagnosed with lupus first because they're so common and it was probably easier to diagnose the lupus than it was to diagnose the sarcoidosis and stuff like that. Um, But, you know, just for my own personal story, when I was first diagnosed, they found it in my kidneys, which really wasn't common at all. If you know anything about sarcoidosis, sarcoidosis of the skin or sarcoidosis in the lungs was more common than anything else. And when they found it in my kidneys, we were kind of baffled. So my nephrologist, um, he referred me to, he referred me to a rheumatologist. This rheumatologist did absolutely nothing for me, but prescribed me medicine. And that was it. I, I can't remember a time when they ever pulled out a, you know, a stethoscope or they ever pulled out anything to do any type of body exams or anything of that sort. So it's the me telling you how I was feeling, me telling you what was going on, me telling you my symptoms, me telling you this, me telling you that, and you're just not listening. Ignored everything that I had to say. So it was it was just one of those things like, okay, now, this is not working for me. So what did the charismatic chastity say? Oh, you're about to get fired. <laughs> and that's exactly <laughs> what I did. I fired my rheumatologist and I found a new one. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Makes you feel any better. I did too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It made me feel a whole lot better. Yeah. Okay. Dr. James is with us. Here we are. And we're, we're chatting along. We just sort of introduced it and we're just going to bring you right into the conversation. But uh, we have just been talking about uh, the terrible statistical situation for women of color with sarcoidosis. And Chasta's been talking a little bit about how her group feels like they've been treated by sort of disregarded by medical science when they come in as patients. Uh, And I'm sure that's not a new thought to you. But what I want to do is ask you, if, if you would, is, is there something we were, we, Chess and I can only suppose that it's something that's genetically related, DNA related or whatever. Is there a, a clinical reason why women of color are so impacted by sarcoidosis compared to other groups? So I agree with you, you know, with the genetic predisposition, you know, I think one of the things specific to South Carolina, at least that I think demonstrates that is they did do one study looking at hospitalization rates in the upstate, which is the Greenville area, Midlands around Columbia and the low country, and looked at hospitalization rates and white and black sarcoid patients in those areas. And in the low country, there was a significantly higher rate of hospitalizations in black patients um, compared to other regions that couldn't be explained just by differences in, you know, population. Um, And so the theory being that, you know, maybe there is something in the environment down here, whether it's some, you know, environmental bacteria associated with, you know, the salty, humid environment that black patients may be more likely to, respond to and and cause um, sarcoidosis. You know, another good example of sort of that genetic environment interaction is um, the Gullah population, you know, which is one of the few sort of, I guess you could call it genetically isolated black populations in the U.S. um, who come from Sierra Leone and Africa. In Sierra Leone, lupus does not exist. But in the Gullah population in South Carolina, the prevalence of lupus is astronomically higher than the rest of the country. Hmm. So again, sort of thinking that there is something in the environment that they may be genetically predisposed to that's causing them to um, their immune systems to behave differently. You know, clinically, the patients that I see who come in with really bad scarring in the lungs. Um, You know, a lot of them, to be honest, have not probably had the health care to that point that they should have received for various reasons. Um, You know, I think, and again, you know, I I think we should be taking full blame for this, um, but it's, you know, they, in general, I think a lot of times black patients have less of a trust for the healthcare world because um, it's, you know, historically has been a predominantly white male, you know, world where we haven't done a good job of um, actually taking care of patients the way we should. And they also, in general, though, if you look at our clinic population specifically, Um, For example, the no-show rates. So when patients have, you know, appointments scheduled and they just don't show up, we actually have started calculating that data and looking at who that population is. And it's middle to young age black women. And what we've now started doing is actually... There are no-shows. 
Right. So they just don't show up to clinic. Um, and so, you know, historically, and this is kind of gets to that bias you guys are talking about historically, you know, when I first got here, the solution to that problem was to overbook. So all the healthcare system is worried about is actually being sure those appointment spots are filled, not actually right. reaching out to those patients and saying, Hey, why couldn't you come? You know, like, what can we do to help you? And so when we've started reaching out to those patients to see what the issue is, um, transportation is a big one. So they may not have a car, you know, they've got one friend with a car and if something changes and they can't take them to their appointment anymore, they're out of luck or they got, you know, childcare issues or they're working three jobs and they just, you know, either slept through the appointment because they've only gotten two hours of sleep in the last 24 hours or, you know, couldn't get out of their job. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of things where, you know, the focus again of sort of the healthcare world has, has not been to accommodate those patients and try to do everything we can to enable them to get the kind of care they need because, a lot of times I'll see patients who at their first visit, yeah, they've got active sarcoidosis in their lungs. Their CT scan shows some inflammation, but not much in the way of scarring. They're usually younger, you know, early thirties, black patients. And then they get lost to follow up for two years. And the next time I see them, it's in the hospital because they've been coughing up blood. And now they've got just terrible scarring because they haven't, you know, been on treatment and, the inflammation has kind of run wild, so to speak, in their lungs. Um, and those are just heartbreaking situations because that's something where we really could have intervened earlier and prevented that. And Right. Let, um, let me jump in here because I want to get Chasta to, re to react to that. Chasta, is all that ringing true to you? It it sounds very familiar. Really? It sounds very familiar. Um, and in my situation, I was diagnosed at the age of 18, uh, right before my 19th birthday back in 2005. And, you know, I never had the pleasure of working three jobs and having to take care of children and stuff like that. But I did have the notion of when the sarcoidosis started to affect my eyes, I felt like it became a burden because I couldn't drive myself to places and stuff like that. So I had to rely on other transportation. And if I couldn't get my mom to get off work or my brother was busy or my aunt couldn't do it, then I was just stuck. And, you know, for lack of better terms, I was stuck like Chuck. So, <laughs> you know, it was just, it sounds very, very, very familiar. Um, I've been blessed with a team of doctors though. My nephrologist um, was Indian. Um, and so he took amazing care of me um, before he decided to get out of that particular field and started to pursue other areas of science, of medicine and stuff like that. So every other doctor besides the few that I uh, fired <laughs> um, have been of minority descent. And so they kind of knew, you know, I'm not going to say they automatically knew that I got to give her a little special attention because she's an African-American woman, but being 18, I didn't ask for this. I thought I was doing everything possible starting at the age of 17. I was a high school athlete. I was a scholar. I was on my way to college, you know? Right. So I didn't ask for this. So I really had no reason to be treated like I was an infection. Yeah, and you're, you are, you're blind in one eye now yes. because of sarcoidosis yes. and and where else do you have it in your body where there's manifestation every dr james where else do I, I have it everywhere but <laughs> um i think the only thing that's not really affected is my neural system yeah um, 
I don't have a lot of activity with my liver at all. You got it in your, your lungs and your eyes mainly in terms of yeah, it's mainly the lungs and the eyes. Those yeah. are the, the main places that we're treating now. But like I said earlier, when they originally found it, they found it in my kidneys, which was a little weird. Right. But we made it through all of that. I, I should point out that Dr. James is your doctor. Yes. He's yeah. my he's mine. Right. He's mine. I, haven't been, I haven't been fired yet. No, he hasn't been fired yet. <laughs> well, be careful. So <laughs> So, Dr. James, let me let me get back to this, because when I I looked at these statistics that I just shared with the listeners, um, African-American women, 10 times higher than Caucasian women and more than double that of African-American men uh, in terms of hospitalization rates. I mean, some of these are off the chart anomalies statistically. Is is this group of, of of people just not being listened to, or or, or what's going on? I, I think it's a combination of things. I think, um, like we talked about earlier, you know, the the healthcare access isn't what it should be. But I also think they just are more likely to have more severe disease, which you know we know based on historical studies in sarcoidosis that you know the likelihood that they have multiple organ involvement is higher. The likelihood that they have more severe lung disease and fibrosis is higher. Um, and you know the other bias, I guess I would say, is you know similar to what Chasta alluded to earlier is. Um, 10, 20 years ago, you know, patients would come in and it wasn't, I feel like we didn't really do a great job of, of managing sarcoidosis in general, you know, on the whole, obviously with a few exceptions out there, but um, doing things like, you know, looking for dangerous organ involvement and um, the idea of seeing a patient with scarring in their lungs and just automatically calling that patient as burnt out sarcoid and not having active inflammation that could benefit from treatment um, we've gotten a lot better at that recently in studies from Europe, for example, showing that actually 75% of those patients with scarring have associated inflammation and can have improvement in their symptoms if you actually treat them. Um, and so, you know, I think it's a, a combination of things ultimately, but all things I think that we can do a job of addressing. And a lot of it has to do with awareness. And it's not only awareness for, on the patient's part, but also on the physician's and side of things. I mean, that's, um, from my standpoint, you know, one of our biggest missions is to try to do everything we can to have every provider, you know, be aware of dangerous organ screening of, you know, when to treat somebody with sarcoidosis, when to not treat them and obviously avoid all the side effects of prednisone. Um, so there's still a lot to be done, but I think it's all surmountable. So, that's that's my question is Chasta, what what would you like to see and what would the the women of color committee like to see i know you've had some meetings what would you like to see happen right away education as patients um education people getting educated um one of the things that we released on yesterday was you know the ask engage connect um, so that you can be informed about what's going on, not only with our campaign, but what's going on in our community. Um, we really want um, providers to listen to us. We want our community and our families to understand and not necessarily just understand, but to not blow us off just like our, our providers are doing as well. And because it's hard, 
you know, sarcoidosis is one of those diseases that nobody really knows. So we are the voice of sarcoidosis. We're the, the faces of sarcoidosis, you know, we're the voices of sarcoidosis and everything that we're saying is experience. So statistics at that point go out the window. This is the experience that we're having. This is what it's doing to my body. And if you just take the time to listen, get educated, donate to research opportunities, go to the doctor with me, listen to what the doctor says. If you got a question for the doc, listen, my mom will ask Dr. James any question out there. She's, she asks sometimes more questions than I do. The last visit we had, my aunt went with us. She was asking questions. So ask questions, um, be involved, get engaged in the community, you know, so that we can get um, not only sarcoidosis possibly cured before I die, <laughs> but, you know, I, I really want to see us move forward with the research. I really want to see us move forward with the engagement from our community, from our friends and our family. And I really, really, really would love to see the understanding from more providers. It, and, does, does she make good comments there? A hundred, a hundred percent. Yeah. And it's, um, and I, I really want to actually reemphasize two things that she mentioned. One is um, research. So, and again, you know, largely a failure on our side of things where we have not done a good job of recruiting patients in the studies with the worst disease. I mean, if you look at the the larger funded trials historically in sarcoid, you know, most of them are 70 to 80% white patients. Um, you know, with, with median incomes, you know, well above the poverty level, which if you look at my clinic population, that's, you know, the people who have bad disease, that's not, um, that's not the people who are included in these studies. Um, and the other thing is, um, sort of, the psychology, I should say, of sarcoidosis, because it is really frustrating for patients when you've got this disease, you can look normal on the outside, but you've got profound fatigue, you're short of breath, you're having trouble seeing, um, and having that conversation with family and friends and even some physicians, you know, it's, it's really hard for them to convey how they're actually feeling and then have other people actually believe them because again, they look normal on the outside. And, and there's even things like, um, you know, the patient guilt. I had a, a patient this week already talk to me about, um, you know, how he really struggles because, you know, he wants to take his wife on trips and, you know, show her how much he appreciates her, but he has this profound guilt because she's stuck taking care of him on oxygen at home all day and having to drive him back and forth to, to visits and things like that. So I think, you know, having family members who, are really engaged like Chasta's family is, um, you know, having those sort of advocates around you can make a huge difference in how people do not only just, you know, having a support system, but asking those questions that you may not have thought of, you know, so I think educating everybody would make a huge difference down the road. Yeah. So as we, as we go forward here and that's Chasta, the, um, your group is made up of patients and and caregivers as well. Is that correct? Yes, we have um, patients. Uh, everybody is a patient except for one young lady. She's a caregiver. And we also have a couple of healthcare providers, um, as far as nurses is concerned, that are on the team as well. So. All right. And so when you guys get together and you and you talk about the commonality that you're seeing, which is 
um, difficulty in being diagnosed and then difficulty in being listened to and so forth. Um, how do you raise the flag? How do you get the word out there to the rest of the world that this is going on? And how do 15 of you make a difference? Well, what we're doing now, <laughs> um, joining a committee that FSR has put together. But like I tell a lot of people, my advocacy work started the first day I was diagnosed because I knew absolutely nothing about sarcoidosis. I never knew it existed until January the 5th. And I got that phone call and my doctor said, this is what it is. So I began to advocate for myself. Um, I advocated for myself. We He gave me information that was needed to get me over the hump <clears throat> and tell me what it was. He laid the groundwork for me and I just picked it up and started running. Um, so I've been doing my own advocacy work since January the 5th, 2005. Um, and then I found and connected with other people who were doing a whole lot more than what I was doing. And I sat down and I listened. I listened to what their stories were. I listened to how they were getting information out. And when social media just began to boom, I said, hey, let me go ahead and run with it. I was nervous at first. I didn't want to put my life on social media because I felt like I was putting too much of my business out there. But this this particular business can help somebody else. So I took it and I ran with it. You can find me on all major social platforms. And I'm always talking about sarcoidosis somewhere. So until people really take heed to what you're doing socially, you need to open your mouth, say something. Say I got something that. I got that. But, but, you know, you're one person and then you've got 14 other people. So, so, you know, Dr. James, how do we get the medical community all across the United States and around the world to listen and, and how can the foundation for sarcoidosis research help make an impact so that doctors know what what you have figured out with some of these studies about you know the, the no shows and 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 people not being listened to and the likelihood that it is active uh, sarcoidosis as opposed to burned out sarcoidosis how how do we get the whole medical community to start looking at this? So I would say two big things: noise and resources. So um, so the noise is just what Chas is alluding to where. You know, there's just more people putting their stories out there. Um, and for example, you know, one of the impacts that could have, which would be significant is in South Carolina, at least, sarcoidosis is not on the list of diseases for which you can get disability for, um, which makes applying for disability and Medicare and Medicaid for a lot of patients extremely difficult, which, you know, prevents them from having the resources they need for care. Um, so, with resources, it's not only educational resources, I think, both for physicians and for patients, um, but it's actually trying to come up with some tools that we can put in people's hands. And so one of the one of the things that we're working on right now is actually trying to make a another smartphone app that patients, regardless of whether or not they've been seen at MUSC, can download it, answer questions about their sarcoid, and it'll tell them what dangerous organ screening testing they may need. And then they can take that either to their physician or they can do a, a video visit with us here at MUSC. Um, and that's something that, you know, you may have a, a rural patient who sees a rural family medicine doctor not familiar with sarcoid and they come in and say, hey, I got this app. 
you know, it says I need an EKG and an echo in that position, it would then be a learning opportunity for that position to be like, what on earth is this? You know, why would we ever need to do that for sarcoid? And so, you know, I think things like that would make a, a big difference because it's truly not only a resource that can be educational, but also a tool to actually ensure patients are getting the care they need. So if, if, if an African-American woman shows up with her smartphone and an app and I'm just going to pick some hinterlands place, um, North Dakota, and says, hey, look, I need this. Come on. That, that doctor's not going to listen to that person. It's just because doctors hate it when patients have been on the Internet before they come and see them and have already self-diagnosed. I mean, all doctors hate that no matter what it is. So if you show up with an app that says, look, I have sarcoidosis, is it going to work? So I, I think two things would help it work. One would be having the app be created and made and promoted by a, a credible sarcoidosis center um, with some legitimacy as opposed to just somebody who just creates this thing out of the blue. Um, and the other thing is, is the advocacy piece. And so, you know, Chasta has said this multiple times where, you know, when we give people this tool, if their physician blows them off, we need to also enable them to advocate for themselves and give them other avenues of, you know, who do you get in touch with if you get blown off by your physician? Um, you know, who, how do you find patients around you to figure out who others may be seeing that are more familiar with sarcoidosis? locally. So I agree with you. There may be some people who uh, they're not too happy when they've all of a sudden got to do some additional order, some additional testing to follow up on. But again, you know, if, if even only a three out of 10 patients, they actually get the testing they need that in my opinion, is still a good thing. When I was diagnosed with sarcoidosis, um, one of the people, and I was kind of in a haze coming out of surgery because I'd had this major surgery on my neck because they thought that I had a tumor uh, only to find out that it was sarcoidosis when they got in there. Uh, but I remember somebody looking at me and saying, you really shouldn't have sarcoidosis because you're not African-American and you're not an African-American female. Uh, and I thought, okay, I didn't know what to do with that information, not process it. But um is it, is it more, are African-Americans just more predisposed to have sarcoidosis? Is that, yeah. is that true? Yes. And, and this is a very common misconception. And one of the first thing that I teach the fellows in training here is, you know, I actually ask them, all right, in the world, you know, do whites or blacks have more sarcoidosis? The answer is whites in the U S is it more common in whites or black people? And the clarification on that is, are there more total number of white sarcoid patients than black patients? And the answer to that is yes. There in the US, there's more white people with sarcoid than black people. But if you take hundred white patients and hundred black patients, the prevalence of sarcoidosis is gonna be much higher in the black population than the white population. Um, so they are more predisposed to getting it. And that bias you mentioned, John, is still wildly prevalent today. I've seen, you know, young white women, for example, who went two years with what I would consider an extremely common presentation for sarcoidosis, who were told over and over again, well, gosh, your biopsy shows granulomas, but you can't have sarcoid, you're not black. Um, and so, 
again, the education piece on the part of physicians, I think is, is really important for the success of all this. So having empowered patients, but also having, you know, knowledgeable physicians is important. But it also brings home the stance that we're, while we're here, African-American women are not speaking out because we don't feel like we will be heard. So while you see the numbers of more white women here or more white women there or more white patients here, it's simply because the black delegation are, we're not speaking out because we don't always feel like we're heard. We went to the doctor um, because we had stumped toe and come to find out or a, a sprained ankle, but come to find out two months down the road after we've been in a boot that it was actually broken because you didn't take the time to do the x-ray, to do the scans and all that kind of stuff. You just threw something on it. You threw a Band-Aid on it and you sent us on our way. And we've been walking around doing more damage to the broken ankle simply because the doctor didn't do what the doctor was supposed to do. So we're not speaking out. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, well, you know, maybe, you know, my doctor just doesn't just doesn't listen to me. I'm, I'm not speaking out about it because nobody cares anyway. I've heard that so many times just within the social circle that we're not going to be heard. So that's why the numbers are the way they are, because African-American women or women of color don't feel like we'll be heard. And I think the just to add to that, Chasta, um, I think that can go both ways, not only in not necessarily advocating for themselves specifically when they know they have sarcoid, but the patients who come in who may have an x-ray finding that might be consistent with sarcoidosis and the physician automatically says, oh, you probably got sarcoid. We don't need to do any other testing. I mean, I've seen multiple patients who I've actually diagnosed again years later with cancer who were in and out of ERs getting prednisone, being told they had um, sarcoidosis and come to find out if they had just had more testing or it, or it said, you know, like, hey, this doesn't seem right. Like I keep having these symptoms, I'm in and out of the ER. Like, how do I get more testing to really figure out what this is? You know, being able to advocate for themselves would hopefully help, you know, prevent people from being misdiagnosed with sarcoidosis. Yep. Well, it seems it seems like what I'm hearing then is you got a group that's that's predisposed to have sarcoidosis, uh, who it feels like they're not listened to, and, and and but also has a hard time getting to the doctor. Um, and then, but we look at these statistics, and and we have a mortality rate that's 13 times higher than that of Caucasians, uh, and but 1.5 times higher than African American men. Are African-American men more listened to by physicians? I'll let y'all answer that question. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's the same. So. Yeah. It's the same yeah. for men. It's the same it's for African-American men. So if you're yeah. black, people don't listen to you. Right. <laughs> the, doctor, the doctors don't listen to you. Right. It's, it's, and it's not just necessarily black. It's just anybody of the minority descent. Minority descent. Okay. That's, that's fair. So, uh, Dr. James, is I mean, is there is there some educating that we need to do with the medical community? Absolutely. Um, you know, and I think it's I think there's a lot of underlying biases there that may actually, in my opinion, make the mortality rate 
that's been reported in African-American men lower than it truly is because we know men are less likely to seek health care than women. Um, and so it may be that it's actually higher. And like Chasta said, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, you know, when you come in and, and have all these non-specific complaints and you look normal on the outside, you know, physicians are much more likely to just blow you off and not necessarily, you know, say, hey, maybe we should do some more testing to, to look into this. And so I think the idea of, you know, when you have a sarcoid patient, they may look normal on the outside, but they may feel terrible. And there may truly be some life-threatening underlying organ involvement that needs to be looked for. And um, without evaluating for that, you can't blow them off, you know, until you've done your job, in my opinion, to actually rule that out and be sure there's nothing that's actually truly dangerous that needs to be treated. You it's malpractice to not continue to investigate and, and do your job as a physician. So we've got uh, about uh, 10 minutes left here. I just want to hear from each of you. So the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research has launched this committee. They're, they're going to be doing some stuff uh, with uh, social media. Uh, you're here on the podcast and hopefully the podcast will help advance the conversation. Um, and you've got sponsorship from Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals and Global Genes. So there, there is a little bit of money behind this. Can it make a difference, Dr. James? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think the power in making changes in the healthcare world really lies with the patients. And, you know, empowering patients in my personal experience and personal opinion, I think that has a huge impact. Um, I mean, just think about Bernie Mac, you know, God rest his soul. You know, if he hadn't passed away, there wouldn't really be, you know, anybody out there for patients to say, oh, this is what Bernie Mac thought of. Maybe I need to actually take this seriously. Um, and so I think empowering physicians is super important. And through that, I think we'll be able to hopefully educate more physicians as well, in addition to patients but I do think it's going to be successful. I think it's going to require some work and I think we're going to have to make some noise and, and really change the research landscape. Um, but I think definitely with patients like Chasta involved, it can, it can happen. Chasta, what do you think? Um, absolutely. And I was going to, you know, say what Dr. James said, just say it a different way. It's not the sole responsibility of our doctors to advocate for us all the time. We have to absolutely put in work for ourselves um, to make sure that we're heard, to make sure that we're communicating, because Dr. James and I just did um, a seminar on bridging the gap between the patient and provider relationship. And it is very important that, you know, the patient and the provider have a working communication relationship that allows you to actually be heard by your provider. And I think it's very, very, very important that um, the bedside, in the words of my grandmother, God rest her soul, bedside manners from a doctor um, are always exuded. And, you know, and I'm not saying you have to be forceful. Um, I'm very playful when I go see Dr. James. I'm very charismatic. That's just my personality. And we always have a good, we're laughing majority of the time. And the only time we don't laugh is when I don't feel good. So thank yeah. God we haven't had a lot of those visits and stuff like that. But um, 
you know, and you have to make, you have to make it, you know, make it what it is, put your personality into it. And so Dr. James is a wonderful physician, but Dr. James is also a wonderful person because I know his personality. So, you know, it's just not the sole, you know, responsibility for the doctor to do all the work. As a patient, you have to do the work as well. All right. And now you've got your group, you've got 15 women and you've got some money behind you and the power of the foundation for sarcoidosis research. So hopefully the, the tentacles of all of that, you'll take that nucleus and you'll just push it out. And well, you've got women from what, 11 different States and Mm -hmm. uh, with, with various manifestations, 11 manifestations of sarcoidosis, which means different places in their body. Um, and so hopefully that'll all work. And, uh, and, and Dr. James, you know, you've got your group at, at, there at the uh, Medical University of South Carolina. Um, and hopefully you guys will reach out to your colleagues and, and people will just become more aware, right? Exactly. At the end of the day, it's about awareness. Yep. It takes okay. a village. All right. Yep. Well, guys, thank you for joining me here on the podcast today. Thank you, John. Thank you. I feel like a zombie just feeding at stumbling. Okay, women of color and your supporters, it's time to get active. So I'll tell you right now, if you're listening on October 25th, 2021, today is the day that there's a Twitter chat on the topic. It's sponsored by Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals and Global Genes. It's from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. Central Time. Two doctors who are a part of that clinical advisory committee will be answering questions about sarcoidosis. To join the chat, users should follow the at Stop Sarcoidosis group on Twitter, that's FSR, and then post uh, using the hashtags, hashtag sarcoidosis, hashtag ignore no more, hashtag AAWS, and hashtag WOC. And then I want to tell you that coming up in February of 2022, which is um, not too far off, it's Black History Month, and FSR will be launching a month-long social media campaign providing an easy-to-use social media toolkit and also educational resources to help raise awareness. The educational webinar will be held on February in February of 2022, and we also want to let you know that there is an infographic providing detailed information on the prevalence of sarcoidosis in African-American women, and that is already available on FSR's webpage and it is dedicated to the AAWS campaign, African American Women with Sarcoidosis campaign. In the meantime, of course, uh, the, the women are meeting and they're coming up with new plans to raise awareness about the issues that we've talked about here on the podcast. And of course, FSR is working to create other opportunities to let their voices be heard, to magnify those voices, and hopefully make an impact. I do want to bring your attention to uh, a previous episode of the Sark Fighter podcast, which was an interview with A-Tire's president and CEO, Sanjay Shukla, because A-Tire may be on the verge of a breakthrough for a new Sark medication, which could affect African-American women and everybody else, primarily pulmonary patients, as far as they know. Uh, But it would be the first medication pointed straight at 
sarcoidosis. So if you're looking for a really good back episode, check that out. And I'll put that in the show notes as well, because uh, in the next year or 18 months, we will be hearing about what may be a breakthrough in fighting sarcoidosis. Remember, the official Sark Fighter song is called Zombie by Mark Steyer and his band, the White Hot Lizards from Alberta, Canada. From Alberta, Canada. Uh, Mark is a fellow Sark fighter, a hockey player. Couldn't play anymore because of sarcoidosis, but also an amazing musician. So listen to the song and go back and listen to his story if you like. I think you'll enjoy it. I call this the Sark Fighter Podcast because I have sarcoidosis. And if you're in this space, whether you're a caregiver, a patient, or a researcher, this is a place we can gather because so many Sark Fighters feel like they're all alone. And I do want to let you know that there is a reason for hope, that people are doing things, and that there is a robust fight against sarcoidosis. And we've heard all about that here today. And as always, I need to tell you that my trusty dog, Dougal, my boxer, who we rescued from the local SPCA, is curled up on the chair right in front of me. And Dougal is one of the things that makes my life so much better. That's a good boy, Dougal. He's not even looking at me. Please don't forget to go back to listen. Uh, go back and listen to the bonus episodes on sarcoidosis and COVID-19 and another bonus episode on how to deal with prednisone, which is the frontline defense for sarcoidosis. But prednisone itself can make our lives unpleasant. Um, and we had rare opportunities when FSR put some of the top experts all together in patients. And we could talk about what was going on from the patient perspective and what doctors think of it think about it and what researchers think about it and what one researcher said about prednisone was that it should never be allowed to be a drug. It is it is poison and it never would get through the process if somebody was trying to introduce prednisone into the medical world today. It would not pass muster. So, but you may very well be listening to this and taking prednisone and you might want to hear that. If you're new here and you're just trying to figure out what SARC is, try listening to episode one with Dr. Simon Hart, actually episode two with Dr. Simon Hart. Uh, that is one of the most listened to episodes. If you want to know my story, listen to episode one, give you my whole sorry backstory of fighting sarcoidosis. Please send me an email. It's in the show notes, carlinagency at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, if you have some thoughts, maybe you'd like to appear as a guest, please let me know. Uh, follow the Sark Fighter on Instagram and on Facebook. And I really just appreciate your interest in the Sark Fighter podcast. I enjoy the feedback and uh, just enjoy knowing that we're, we're making a little bit of an impact here. This uh, helps me reach more people and grow the show. If you would share it on your social media, just grab the link and put it on your Facebook page or on your, uh, you can't put a, a link on your Instagram account, but talk about it on Instagram if you like. Uh, and if you'd like it, just tell one person. Give the show a nice review on wherever you listen to your podcasts. And thanks again to uh, Chasta and Dr. James for joining me here. Good luck with launching the committee for the women of color and let's hope that you guys make a lot of noise and somebody hears it and we can make these statistics settle down just a little bit all right until next time keep fighting